Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule with them, you will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do keep those uh, Bibles open in front of you. Allow me to pray and ask for God's help as we look at this psalm together. Father, we, we need your help to understand your word. Your spirit wrote it. Your spirit interprets it for us. Please would I speak by the power of your spirit and would we all hear by the power of your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the middle of a short series in the Psalms, looking at the first three Psalms of the book of Psalms, the, the song book of the Bible, uh, uh, 150 of them. We're just looking at the first three. Last week we were in Psalm 1. We, we saw that the key to a blessed and happy life was to meditate on God's law, to, to kind of chew it over and, and, and to think on it, to wrestle with it. As we hear and believe what he says, we will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. Now that's what Psalm 1 taught us. And as we come to Psalm 2 this week, which forms a kind of unity with Psalm 1, it, it's got similar words, similar themes. It's got a similar emphasis. Psalm 2, likewise, wants to tell us, what does it look like to live a blessed life, a happy life? How do we find happiness in a world that is full of turmoil? And, and in thinking about Psalm 2 this week, I couldn't help but see how it related to at least one big story that hit the headlines all over the world this week. Uh, last week, the, the story of one high-profile house church pastor in mainland China, Pastor Wang Yi of the Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China. Uh, his story hit the page, uh, hit the front pages. As those who minister in mainland China will know far better than I do, since last year there's been a, a kind of renewed crackdown, as I understand it a persecution of Christians. And at the beginning of December, Pastor uh, Wang Yi and about a hundred members of his congregation were arrested. And this last week, the Chinese authorities sentenced him, sentenced him to nine years in prison for inciting to subvert state power and illegal business operations. Now, I don't have the details of the charges. I, 
I don't have the evidence that was against him. I know at the very least he and his church were very outspoken about um, wrongdoings of the Chinese government. And, and they would uh, flout the, the, the law by going out on the streets and proclaiming the gospel, doing evangelism on the streets. And so they drew attention to themselves. You who can read Chinese, I'm sure you can find much more detail about this pastor and his church than I can. But I raise his case because he left this letter to his congregation uh, to open in the event of his arrest. And I, I wanted to read you an extended excerpt from it as we come to think about Psalm 2. He said this, and this isn't the whole thing, you can uh, Google it later, but he says this, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority, that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and most horrendous evil in Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is also a sin against all non-Christians, for the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus, and there is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think about this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to actively imprison me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. No one can raise me from the dead. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hand, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant. I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Before I continue on, let me just pray for Pastor Wang Yi and his congregation. Father, we pray for this man. We pray for his congregation. We pray that you would defend them and preserve them. We pray that they would 
cling to you and that you would hold on to them. And we pray that whatever the, the realities of, of this case, that justice would be done and that your people would, in the end, rejoice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know what you make of that. Uh, no doubt some of you will tell me afterwards, but um, the question I want, I want to bring out for each of us is this. What gives a man the strength to stand up against one of the most powerful nations in the world at the cost of his own freedom and say such confrontational things? What could give him such trust? For him, for his family, for his church, what can give them such trust in the face of extreme hardship? And I want to suggest to you that that kind of faith in the face of opposition, that kind of unshakable conviction about good and evil, when everyone else around just says, shh, be quiet, don't you know what's going to happen to you if you don't shut up? Now, that kind of belief comes from believing and living according to the truth of a passage like Psalm 2. So, as we, as we look at Psalm 2 this morning, keep that in mind. It's where this tremendous faith in the face of hardship comes from. And... These headings that I'm going to speak on Psalm 2 uh, about, so these three headings, are not original to me, but I found them so helpful, I've nicked them. And they're these three. There is a king. We hate the king. We need the king. First, there is a king. So, uh, according to tradition, that Psalm 2 may have been written for and used in enthronement ceremonies in ancient Israel. Uh, perhaps King David, or more likely his descendants, when they were being put on the throne, the, the people may have sung this psalm together, Psalm 2. And um, what was obvious to them, therefore, as they're singing it around the enthronement of this new king, is perhaps less obvious to us, gathered in this building in Pakshawan. Which is why, although the psalm starts with opposition in verses 1 to 3, I think we need to start with the recognition that, first, there is a king. Verses 4 to 9, and particularly verse 6, God says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, the Old Testament book of Samuel records the Lord God promising to uh, David that he would establish an everlasting kingdom for him. And that he and his descendants would rule from his throne forever. And so as long as the king ruled according to God's law, and as long as they proclaimed the decrees of the Lord, as verse 7 puts it, the king would enjoy a special relationship with God, like, a, like a, a son to a father. And God's people would flourish. They, they would be defended from all their enemies. 
They would live in peace and prosperity. They, they would serve the Lord as he commanded them to. It, it, it was supposed to usher in a golden age for God's people. And in David's rule, and particularly in his son Solomon's rule, it was a golden age. All those things really were coming to fruition. The people flourished. But then after Solomon, Solomon's son, in fact, the kings began to forget the Lord and to forget his decrees. And they rather served their own desires. They made their own decrees. They, they ruled on their own authority. And it wasn't until some 1,000 years later that David's line received all that the Lord had promised. Fulfilled by a new king, born of the house of David, Jesus the Christ. You know, Jesus was the long-promised Christ or Messiah. That's not his last name. That's a title, Christ. It's the same word translated here in verse 2 as anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. And when Jesus began his public ministry, do you remember what the first thing he went out and did was? Do you remember? He, he was baptized. Right? He went out to see his cousin John the Baptist, and when he was baptized, the heavens opened, the, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my Son. An echo of verse 7. Right? This is my Son. Uh, according to the New Testament, he is the only begotten Son of God. He is the uniquely begotten Son of God. And after his death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned. And we read in Revelation 12, if you were here on Christmas Eve, we read that he rules on his throne in heaven with a rod of iron. Just as this psalm says. And his kingdom will know no end. In small ways and in large, in titles, in actions, by the testimony of God, by the testimony of men, by his own testimony about himself, we know that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's promised king that he has enthroned. When David and his descendants failed to fulfill their roles as king, Jesus came. And fulfilled the role. And God kept all his promises to the line of David through Jesus. Much more so than, than any enthronement ceremony in Israel would have known thousands of years ago. The powerful statements being made about God's king in Psalm 2 apply to Jesus. And so, what should this great truth about Jesus do for us, this great truth that there is a king and that king is Jesus, what should that do? So what? Well, it should make us bold and brave. Bold and brave, trusting in God's decree. 
his decreed king. You know, Acts 4 records a, a particular instance in the life of the apostles as they, they went out carrying this message that Jesus had given them. They, they went out into Jerusalem first and then beyond as persecution hotted up. And so in Acts 4, they're still in Jerusalem and Peter and John are captured and imprisoned and the authorities imprison them because they were preaching this message about God's king. And they said, the authorities said, you know, we will let you go if you will just shut up. Stop preaching this message. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have heard, what we have seen. And when they were released, they immediately went out, we're told in, in Acts chapter 4, and they prayed the words of Psalm 2. In a loud voice, they asked the Lord to help them in the midst of persecution, to, sp to speak his word with great boldness, because the king is on his throne. Whatever the authorities in Jerusalem say, the king is on his throne. Knowing that there is a king should give us great boldness, bravery. Now that's what Pastor Wang Yi knows. That's what his church knows and what countless people down through history have known. Countless people around the world today know it. And it gives them the confidence to stand up to persecutors and say, you are not my king. You may have authority for the moment. I will obey you as the government authority that God has put in place over me. But you are accountable to the king. You can convince the whole world that you have sovereignty over your internal affairs and that they should butt out. But Christians know better. Christians know the Lord Jesus has authority over you, and you will be accountable to him. It's what gave the confessing church in Nazi Germany the, the strength to stand up against evil and to say, you can kill us, but you and your regime will be judged. You'll be judged by the king. So what about us? Thankfully, we are not in a, in a region where we're being persecuted at the moment for our faith, for preaching about this king. How does this apply to us? Well, it should give us the courage to stand up against the mockery, the derision, uh, the insults that we might face for our faith in Christ in our own families, in our workplaces amongst friends. It should give you the strength to turn to your boss and say, no, I will not be dishonest for you because Jesus has authority over you and over me. It should give you the boldness to say in a society that values us based on financial success or academic achievement or attractive looks, your decrees have no authority. God has made a decree. Jesus is the authority. 
And it should give you the strength to say to your own desires even, you do not control me. King Jesus controls me. And nothing was going to make you more bold in this life than the settled conviction that Jesus Christ is God's king in the flesh. And all who stand in opposition to him, well, they make God laugh. They make him laugh with derision. Because he knows who the king is, and they will one day know. But despite the overwhelming evidence of scripture and of history, God's king still faces opposition. Why is that? Well, that brings me to the second point, I think, from this passage, that there is a king, but we hate the king. Returning now to the beginning of the psalm, we see that and perhaps better understand the astonished tone of the psalmist as he, as he says in verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The word translated plot here is, is the same one from Psalm 1 translated meditate. And we saw then that it means to murmur like the coo of, of a pigeon or the, the growl of a lion. So the peoples of the nations are depicted as murmuring and muttering against God's king. How dare he presume to rule us? Doesn't he know who we are? Doesn't he know that we will not stand for this? Furthermore, they, they join forces against the anointed one. Verse 2, the, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The kings of the earth, the rulers, all manner of powerful people, they, they stand together against the Lord's anointed one. And if it were a matter of pure numbers, they would clearly win. All their nouns are plural. The Lord is one. His anointed one is one. And what is their cry as they gather to fight? Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Their hatred for God's anointed king comes down to this. They do not want to be servants. Chains and fetters are images of slavery, or perhaps they're meant to, to call to mind the, the yokes placed on oxen that make them plow the fields, and pull the carts, and the kings and the rulers of the earth are crying out, we will not be owned like slaves or like livestock. We will not be controlled, they say, against the one who created them and is claiming authority over them. They say, I'm my own. I am my own. And here we come to the, the basic impulse of every human heart. I am my own. Take these chains off. I belong to no one but myself. It's the essence of what every human heart feels by nature. If you have children, I guess you'll know this very well, right? Right? 
No one has to teach a child to say no, to rebel, to reject the authority of their parents. It, it sets in very early on. Most children learn no as one of their first words, and as we, we grow up, we continue to say it. I am my own. Take off these chains. And you know, some people, they think that if they had only had the chance to, to see Jesus in the flesh, to, to witness his miracles and to hear him speak, that then they would able, be able to accept him as king. But that's not true. Because people did see God's king in the flesh. People did see his miracles and, and hear his teaching. And, and how did they respond? They ran from him. They hit him. They, they spit on him. They whipped him. They nailed him. They killed him. Why? They were all crying out, take off these chains. There is a true king, but we hate him. And some, I guess, might be thinking, you know, that's a bit extreme. Most people don't hate God. People don't conspire and, and plot against him. Now, they might be indifferent. They might not obey his commands, but they don't hate him. And I would push back and say, really? Are you sure? Because the, the Bible's claim isn't that people hate the general idea of God. No, people all over the world, the majority of them, and the majority of people in Hong Kong believe there is a God. They don't hate the general idea of God. No, the people, the, the Bible's claim is that people hate the biblical God. The God who thunders from his holy mountain and says, Be holy, for I am holy. Who says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The one who says, I will by no means clear the guilty. And when the biblical God sends his Messiah, what does the anointed one say? He says, Anyone who does not hate their mother and father, their, their own children or spouse, is not worthy to be my disciple. Now what does that mean? Well, it means in order to be a disciple of Jesus, our love for our nearest and dearest has to look like hate in comparison to the amount we love Jesus. He's saying, I have to be number one in your life. I have to be supreme over you. I have to rule you. I have to have total control of every aspect of you, or you're not worthy of me, says Jesus. Uh, that is the God of the Bible. And that's the God that people hate. You might even be squirming in your seat now and upset at me for talking like that. You, you might be thinking how primitive. I could never believe in a God like that. I believe in a God of love, and I would say I rest my case. That's the normal human reaction to the God of the Bible. The Bible says humanity hates the king who claims the ends of the earth as his possession. And who says, I own you 
put on my chains. And that's the God we reject. So what's the difference between a, a Christian and a non-Christian? Well, the difference, I think one way of talking about the difference is this, that the Christian recognizes their hatred for God. And you might think, isn't that exactly wrong? But no, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the Christian to say, no, I am an enemy of God by nature. I don't want anything to do with God by nature. And that drives the Christian to admit that they are such hopeless sinners that only the death of the Son of God could give them the relationship that they need with God. Only by being rescued from what we are by nature will we have a relationship with the God of the Bible. And so the Christian is forced to rely fully and finally on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? The only way to be friends with God is to admit that we're enemies by nature. The only way to, to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you is if you can see your resentment at work in you. There is a king. We hate the king. But finally, we need the king. Because when we see that there is one, we, we see that we hate him, the only way out of our problem that that creates is to be persuaded that we need him. Now look again at what the psalmist tells us, uh, how he tells us to treat God's king in verses 10 to 12. What are the, the verbs he uses there? Serve, rejoice, kiss, and we will be blessed. Serve, rejoice, kiss. And we will be blessed. Or refuse to serve, refuse to rejoice, refuse to kiss, and be destroyed in your way. Where we stand in regard to this king that God has established will determine whether we are blessed or whether we perish. And what the psalmist is saying, therefore, is this. There is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. There is no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. You see, that's the argument of verses 10 to 12. It's what we fear as oppression, and what we see as something that will bind us and constrict us is actually God's offer of refuge to us. That those chains that we think will, will make us confined in life actually open us up to a spacious way of life. That the service of this king is actually perfect freedom. Do you see? 
The nations conspire, they, they plot to throw off the chains, believing this is how we're going to get free to, to remove God's authority over me and the authority of his king, but in reality that leads to perishing on the way. But those who serve, who rejoice, who kiss the king and embrace his rule, they're the ones that are blessed. We need the king. We desperately need the king. Some of us have started reading the Bible together this year through uh, the Read Scripture Bible reading plan. If you'd like to have a look at it, it's on the table at the back on the way out. But we were uh, reflecting on something of the God who is to the world. I'm sorry, we were made to reflect something of the God who made the world, rather. We, we were created in his image, we saw in the first few chapters of Genesis. In the way we work, in the way we relate to others, in the, in the crea creativity we show, in the way we bring order to chaos, that's how we were made to reflect God's image in the world, but sin tarnishes the image. We fail to live up to that potential that we were created for. As Adam and Eve sought freedom from God, they actually found a diminished, decaying, frustrated way of life. They and us, when we seek freedom from God, are destroyed on the way. But when we take refuge in God's king and see that apart from him, we will perish, then we find that that potential that we were created for, the thing we were made to do, suddenly becomes possible for us. And we find that our potential is actualized. We, we begin to grow and flourish and rejoice in ways that we never knew was possible for us. And we begin to live the lives we were created for. But friends, that freedom, that, that happiness, that only comes when we turn everything that we have, everything that we are, over to the king. And we say to him, I'm, I'm done raging, I'm done muttering, I want you to rule. So if you, and this is in closing, if you haven't knelt before King Jesus before, why not make this morning the first time? You know, in a simple prayer, you can say something like this. These aren't the only words you can say, but you could say something like this. King Jesus, you know that I have lived in hatred of you, but I want to live in submission to you. I want to serve you with fear. I want to, I want to rejoice over you with trembling. I, I, I want to kiss you. Embrace you as my king. I want to be blessed. So let me find refuge in you. And if you can pray a prayer like that, then you will be blessed. You'll be blessed this morning. A, a glorious new chapter of your life will begin. And if you 
are already a Christian, perhaps you have been serving King Jesus for many years, I want you to go out this week. As, as we head out this morning, as we go back into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, we, we ride the bus and we're surrounded by people, I want you to look around and say, Jesus is king over him and over him and over her and over them. Jesus is king over them. God wants to bless them if they can only take refuge in the king. And I want you to ask yourself, how are those people going to hear? How are those people going to know that the offer of refuge is for them? If you're a Christian, go out this week and perhaps you might have the opportunity to boldly, bravely declare the decree, there is a king, he's offering you refuge. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful that though we are enemies of you by nature, you have made us your friends by sending the Lord Jesus Thank you that he took the punishment that we deserve so that we could receive the reward that he deserves. I pray that if there are some here wanting to, to know that refuge this morning, that you would show it to them, that by your Holy Spirit you would grant them all that the psalm promises, and that you would grant each of us who have been uh, seeking to honor King Jesus for many years, that you would grant us the boldness and the bravery that comes along with knowing him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.